This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. Before this episode starts, I have two invitations for you. One is to join us for an open webinar dedicated to the financial benefits of the ABCDF bundle. It is on October 18th at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will dive deep into the incredible financial loss our hospitals are experiencing from sedation and immobility and the proven huge return on investment when hospitals provide adequate staffing, equipment, training, and support for teams to master the ABCDF bundle. The second invitation is to join us for the earlymobility.com conference on April 14th through 16th in Orlando, Florida. I'll be there again, helping oversee the ICU training. This conference is so unique. It is incredibly hands-on with lots of interdisciplinary simulation training, critical thinking, practical learning to make you and your colleagues return to your ICU with the skills and perspectives to practice the ABCDF bundle and really mobilize your patients. This conference is for all disciplines, PTOT, RN, RT, MD, SLP, everyone needs to be there. Link to registrations for both of these events are in the show notes. Now, this episode, we're going to be focusing on the A of the ABCDEF bundle, which is for assess, prevent, and treat pain. I have heard many statements such as, quote, we have to sedate our patients because they have pain, or, quote, it's inhumane to let patients be awake when they have pain, unquote. So, Is it really conflicting to assess, prevent, and treat pain while also working towards the objective of the bundle of having patients as awake, communicative, autonomous, and even physically active as possible? Or is the A of the ABCDF bundle really as we have believed to automatically start fentanyl on every intubated patient? Does that really ensure that we are giving patients the best care, comfort, and outcomes? I am excited to have pharmacist and IC liberation expert, Joanna Stalling, with us to teach us exactly what the A of the ABCDF bundle really means. Joanna, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself to us? Hi, my name is Joanna Stallings. I'm the medical ICU um, at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. I also work with our Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction Survivorship Center, and I also work in our Post-ICU Recovery Center at Vanderbilt. I am so excited to talk to you. I've Heard so many people sing your praises as a great expert on the ADF bundle, the PADIS guidelines. Um, tell us about your discipline and you know what your role is with the bundle. So um, I um, have been really fortunate to been involved with the bundle for a really long time, and so probably. How I initially got involved with it um, is that Brenda Pun um, led a quality improvement um, project, which included over like 15,000 patients and implemented the A through F bundle um, nationally. And so I um, was one of the uh, overall like on the the board for that. And uh, so we essentially uh, implemented that um, in multiple 
68 different centers. And uh, we showed that if you do the ABCDF bundle, essentially it's like a dose response. And um, then people spend less time on the vent, they have less delirium, and um, they have uh, less use of restraints, they're less, less likely to be sent to a facility. And um, the only thing we found, or the other thing we found that was very interesting is they had more pain. And since I'm talking about the letter A today, um, I think it's especially important to bring up that point um, is just we think that the reason we found more pain in these people is essentially that because we were looking for it and we had not been looking for it um, before. So that's how I initially got involved. And then I was fortunate enough to be a co-chair um, with Jasper Singh of the IC Liberation Committee of SCCM. So that was really, really fun. That was during COVID when unfortunately utilization of the bundle, um, we were having a lot of problems with that and we were really doing some backtracking just because we did have a lot of drug shortages and uh, people were obviously scared. And so um, it was a really good opportunity to um, to do a lot of things to really implement or to remind people how important it was um, to do the bundle. And so I've spoken about this topic a lot, like nationally and internationally. And so my most recent adventure is I actually got to go to the Ukraine and um, to teach about IC liberation um, for two weeks. And that was one of the most um, rewarding and amazing experiences that I've ever had. Wow. And especially to be talking about pain management for so many horrific trauma victims. That's exactly. huge. Sorry, I get emotional. Thank you for doing that. That's really exciting. I'm sure it's really, really needed. Um, I know Chris Perme went with you as well, and I've, I'm planning on doing an episode with her dedicated to that. Um, pain is such a prevalent thing in the ICU, whether it's in Ukraine mm-hmm. or even in our ICUs, especially our trauma ICUs. Um, I think we have some mandated elements of the A in our charting system, CPOTS, pain scale, things like that. But I think we are falling short of really mastering the A. So tell me, what is the A of the bundle and how does it impact patient outcomes? So A stands for assessing, preventing, and treating pain. And so Wes Ely, who's essentially like the godfather of this whole bundle, and his wife, Kim, who's just this wonderful lady, um, she was like, why don't you make the A analgesia? And we're all like... Oh, yeah, we should have. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. So that you can think of it as analgesia or you can think of it um, as the other. But essentially, um, we what we found or what we have found over and over in studies, um, not just ones that we have conducted, is um, if you don't look for pain, unfortunately, you're going to miss it. And um, it's not just um, the trauma patients or the surgical ICU patients or the burn patients that it's like, more obvious that they have pain sources. Like this happens all the time in our medical ICU because maybe they come in and um, they have sepsis and you're like, oh, they don't really have a source of pain, but that's not true. Like I wouldn't want to lay in one of those ICU beds or be intubated or have an endotracheal tube or a chest tube or a Foley catheter or getting my finger pricked to get my glucose checked. There's multiple sources of pain that we don't think about in our patients every day. And unfortunately, um, if we don't treat pain, guess what happens? They get agitated. Um, and then they can quite often get delirious, which I'm sure you're going to have somebody talk about the letter D and we know yep. all the horrific outcomes associated with delirium that they have long-term cognitive impairment. They spend more time in the hospital um, and they have higher mortality. And so it's just really, um, if you don't treat pain when it's indicated, then you can really send the, send the patient down a road that they don't need to go down. And it can be really difficult to treat pain when you can't either see the symptoms of it or discern what you are seeing. Mm -hmm. So I always suggest that it's easier to adequately treat pain when patients can tell us what they're experiencing. 
Agree. I worry that we take away that opportunity for many patients in which they could have had the opportunity. Many situations in which patients don't necessarily have an indication for sedation, but because they're intubated, boom, they get sucked into this vortex of sedation, opioids, immobility, right? And they don't get the opportunity to wake up and tell us, I have pain, it's not adequately treated, or I don't have pain, I don't need opioids. So how do we best screen for pain for those that can report it and those that cannot? So if you can report pain, um, we want to recommend using a numeric rating scale. So that's where you would have a pain or a patient uh, tell us, um, you would say the patient on a scale of zero through 10, where 10 is being the worst pain you can possibly imagine, and zero being no pain, like what is your pain to get a more, a better grasp of what their pain is and to better understand like how we should treat that versus if they can't verbalize um, the PAD guidelines, so pain agitation to learn from 2013, and then the PAD guidelines from 2018. So not only PAD, but also early mobility and sleep um, would suggest to use um, the CPOT, which is a critical care pain observational tool or the behavioral pain scale. So the CPOT, for example, or the BPS are for people that can't verbalize. So if you were going to perform a CPOT in your patient, you have to take into ex- uh, account their facial expression. So they get a score of zero through two um, for their facial expression. So, um, for example, if like the patient is grimacing, then they're going to get a higher score than if they're smiling. And um, you take into account their body movements, like are they rolling around in the bed, indicating that they are in distress. And um, they're uh, also their muscle tension. Um, so are they like resisting you? That would also indicate that they're in pain and then either their vocalization or their compliance with the ventilators, the fourth part. So for each of the four parts, they get a score of zero through two. And if a patient has a score of three or more, that would indicate that they're in pain. But obviously them verbalizing their pain is the best way to do it. But when they can't, using either the CPOT or the BPS is the way to go. And this can be really tricky when you have patients that have delirium Mm -hmm. and they come out agitated Right now, systematically, we're not stepping back and saying what is causing the agitation. So the gut response is to increase sedation. Um, When there can be so many different causes, here an example is a trauma patient. A team reached out to me a little bit ago. They had a patient that is a polysubstance abuser and was probably having some withdrawals on top of everything. He had been in a car accident, had some rib fractures, which to anyone that is excruciating and painful. And he was intubated. Mm-hmm. And so they kept on giving him Versed pushes, eventually put him on a Versed drip. Everything kept escalating because he kept coming out agitated. Um, he was getting some opioids, but it was really hard to know what's withdrawal, delirium, pain. Right. How do you navigate that? I mean, honestly, like, so the approach I always take in that situation is always think about pain first. So if I'm presenting this on a PowerPoint, I put it literally like in a circle and say pain is beside delirium is beside agitation. They're all interrelated. And if you don't treat pain, your patient can get agitated or get delirious. And so in that situation, that person had an overt source of pain, you know. And so I would absolutely recommend that we use pain meds um, to treat that and hopefully work on the delirium. And so I like to treat, this isn't necessarily about pain, but this is all interrelated. The mnemonic Dr. Dre, like the rapper in Atlanta, um, where the first DR is like disease remediation. So you're thinking about um, disease or diseases we'd think about would be heart failure or COPD or sepsis. And the next one um, being drug removal. So stopping benzodiazepines, stopping opiates if they're not indicated. So in other words, if you did assessment for pain, they're not indicated, not using them, right? Or drug removal. So using like anticholinergic 
allergics in the ICU that aren't indicated. So like somebody's home allergy med. And then lastly, the environment. Um, so thinking about like um, trying to be quieter at night, not coming in and waking patients up to draw labs or giving them medications in the middle of the night, like if they don't need them or putting um, glasses on patients or their hearing aids or mobilizing patients. So once again, like if people are going through the doctor tray, then part of that, um, they're going to be like, hey, wait a minute, this patient has pain. So maybe that is why the patient is delirious. And we also know that benzodiazepines in themselves are very deliriogenic. And so even if the patient didn't have pain and we were trying to treat agitation, we shouldn't be using benzodiazepines. We're kind of, we're going to worsen the whole entire problem. And that's why they were reaching out to me because they were panicked. They said, this is a mess, right? We don't know what's causing what. And so we troubleshot a lot of the different probable causes. Withdrawal, so we put down um, some clonopin on the feeding tube at a lower dose to maybe ward off some benzodiazepine withdrawal, oxycodone down the feeding tube to make sure there were no opioid withdrawals, but also to manage the pain. We even kept a little bit of fentanyl going so that we didn't have some continuous coverage. Um, it would have been great to have an epidural on him. Mm-hmm, absolutely. could have mobilized and maybe worked through that delirium. But when they did those things and they weaned back the midazolam, um, they started to use their expert nurses. They made sure that the right nurses had him for the next following shifts. And they figured out he wanted to use the bedpan. Wow. And then he used the bedpan and he had calmed down. They were able to keep him on some low-dose Presidex and start to mobilize him some more and really figure out how is his pain mm-hmm. and what does he actually need? And they were able to navigate and adjust things with his engagement. And that, to me, I thought that was a really good example of the A. It's not, so I've had people say, well, we can't avoid sedation in our patients because they have pain. And to me, that's a huge red flag, right? We need to 100% agree with you. Yeah. And that, I mean, that brings into um, uh, up another topic, which is analgo sedation. So essentially, analgo sedation is using opiates not only for their opiate properties, um, but also for their sedative properties um, as well. So Thomas Strom um, is kind of, he published one of the first studies on this. And so he essentially showed, um, he did a study comparing patients that got propofol to intermittent doses of morphine. And people spent like less time um, on the ventilator, like I think it was almost nine days. Um, if they only got the intermittent doses of morphine as compared to the propofol. So it really shows um, we use a lot more fentanyl than morphine, obviously, just because of a lot of our patients have renal dysfunction or they have hypotension, so can't use a lot of morphine. Um, But really just shows that if your patient has pain, um, that you can use opiates not only for their analgesia effects, but also for their sedative effects as well. well. Absolutely. And that should be the first thing that we go to rather than the sedatives, the benzodiazepines, all this plays into having patients be as awake, communicative, and engaged as possible. I personally know that when I'm in labor about to have a baby, uh-huh. I'm not really in a place to talk and communicate <laughs> and tell everyone obviously knows what I need. It's very obvious what's, what's happening, what's, what the cause is, right? But I just think about when these patients are in excruciating pain, but we don't necessarily know what's going on. We need to treat it so they can actually tell us then they can calm down enough to communicate and express their needs. One um, podcast listener told me a story of having their patient awake on the ventilator and they reported chest pain. Um, And because they got that cue from the patient, they did a chest x-ray, they found a large pneumothorax. As they're looking at the machine, the patient arrested. And exactly what caused it. So pain is such a, a vital sign. It's such an indicator of something changing, something going on. So... What are your thoughts about automatically starting fentanyl on every patient 
like fentanyl drips on every patient that's on a ventilator. Is that really practicing the A? Is that what we need to do? So a, a couple of thoughts on that. So initially, so when you intubate somebody, we're going to give them a set of usually a tominator ketamine and we're going to paralyze them. So because we paralyze them, they're going to have to, they're going to have to be a target RAS of negative five for a few hours to give time for that paralytic to wear off. Because one of the worst things I can't imagine this like would be to be paralyzed and to, to remember it, you know, so that's so scary. So initially we have to deeply sedate everyone and give them analgesia, but that's only it, for a few. It's a, it's a procedure, procedural medication. Exactly. But after those few hours go away, then absolutely. We shouldn't be giving fentanyl drips to every single person um, in the ICU. We should be doing appropriate assessments like the CPOT or a numeric rating scale. And we also need to think about, um, so if you look at the PAT guidelines, well, not, again, once again, like you're thinking about like, it's going to say opiates are number one. That's what we should be using in the ICU for most of our patients. But we can't forget, and the PAT guidelines did a fantastic job going over this multimodal therapy. So multimodal therapy essentially means like, don't just give everybody opiates. Um, you have to give them agents that act by different means as well. So we can decrease our utilization of opiates. Because if I was going to name the top five questions that I got when I was in Ukraine, it was like, what about uh, opiate withdrawal on that patient just because they were, were concerned about that because their patients do have so much pain. So really going over multimodal therapy um, with the, them as well, for example. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. So what are our options for multimodal therapy? So one of the first drugs that um, the PADIS guidelines go over is acetaminophen. So acetaminophen is a great drug to use in people who have bone pain. So we think about people who have had fractures or people and have bony metastases, like schedule that and put that in the background um, just so that we can decrease utilization of opiates. Now, if you ha if your institution has IV acetaminophen, which a lot do not, because honestly, it's really expensive. And then sometimes it gets misused when we could use oral, we're not. Um, you have to worry about a little hypotension. Um, but essentially scheduling like oral um, or per tube acetaminophen in the background is a great way to decrease utilization of opiates. The next option you can consider are NSAIDs, right? So we're thinking about like ibuprofen or Ketorolac. Now, these are not for everyone and the PADIS guidelines don't recommend them. And it's not that it's bad. It's that you have to consider the side effects. So once again, if, and I work in the MICU, so, um, 
tons of our patients have renal dysfunction. Um, we have patients that have heart failure. We have patients admitted with GI bleeds. Like those are not the patients you give NSAIDs. But once again, there are patients that have bone pain that you can put this in the background and it'll help decrease utilization of opiates. So one of the hottest drugs out there in the ICU is probably ketamine, right? So ketamine, once again, if you look at the PADIS guidelines, it would say to consider low-dose ketamine in surgical ICU patients. So once again, you can run that in the background and help decrease utilization of opiates, but we shouldn't be using that in our medical ICU patients um, just because um, it can be deliriogenic. It's a PCP analog. Um, so just remembering that. Um, other things, so lidocaine infusions are not recommended by the PADIS guidelines. Once again, it's not that they're bad per se, but literally there uh, was like, there's like one um, study really um, that has evaluated that. And because of that, there's just really not enough evidence to recommend it. But once again, it's not that it's bad. We usually don't use those routinely in our medical ICU unless the pain service is on board, but you can use that um, for a couple days and have good results. Um, the other things to consider are like neuropathic pain. So a question I've gotten before is like, how do you know if a patient has neuropathic pain? So once again, like if you have diabetics or COVID patients, these people have tons of neuropathic pain. So on the PADIS guidelines, actually, if you have a CV surgery patient, it says to essentially give it to everyone. But if it's not, if it's like a medical or another type of surgical patient, it's specifically for neuropathic pain. So looking at those risk factors and considering either pregabalin or gabapentin, I personally wouldn't recommend carbamazepine just because they're there are um, so many side effects associated with it, a lot of drug interactions. So wouldn't necessarily do that, but gabapentin and preabolin, either one, depending that in the background, also um, can be super helpful. So when I think about multimodal, I'm thinking about all those different agents and kind of what can I put in the background to decrease my patient's utilization of opiates. And that just goes in sync with my experiences in an awakened walking ICU. Very few of our COVID patients even had fentanyl drips. Very few COVID or patients that were on ventilators in period had fentanyl drips. It's not that it was a no, no, never. It mm -hmm. was just, we were able to know what they needed because they would tell us. We also utilized everything you've described um, before getting there. And that didn't mean that we just sat there and let them languish. We'd give fentanyl pushes. We try to buy some time while these other things laid a foundation of pain management and then saw what we needed from there. And these patients were awake, calm, compliant, mobilized. This is not what people expect, that they're thrashing, languishing, in excruciating pain. I, I really felt confident that we were adequately managing their pain and not just masking it with sedation. When I talked to some survivors, mm -hmm. they described how much pain they were in mm -hmm. and it was untreated and they couldn't tell anybody. They couldn't report it. They couldn't get relief. Um, and they were psychologically left alone with it while locked into delirium. And it was all incorporated into their delirium. They thought that a snake had bit them and that the worst things had happened. Their brain was trying to make sense of the pain they were having. Even some of the more mild discomfort in their from the endotracheal tube, it all exacerbated the trauma of the delirium because they could not get enough relief from the pain. And nobody knew it from the outside. I'm sure they were had a very low CPOT. Right. We were still and no signs of pain were seen. So as a pharmacist, I'm hearing you were just this fountain of knowledge. <laughs> How do you um, bring in mastery of the A element of the bundle to your team? What is your role in all of this? 
So my role as a pharmacist is like, so I'm going on rounds every day. And so our nurses actually present the A through F bundle. It's one of the first things they present on rounds. And so just listening and it's like, okay, so what is their CPOT or what is their numeric rating scale? And what have we put on for pain? And so absolutely, like, I don't think that we could complete this like podcast without saying like Tim Gerard, when he published the ABC study, right, that showed coordinating the spontaneous awakening trial with the spontaneous breathing trial that made people spend like three or fewer days in the vent, four or fewer days in ICU, four or fewer days in the hospital and a 14% reduction in morning mortality, that he not only people had their sedation turned off, but they had their analgesia turned off too. We can't forget that. Um, so anyway, so, but I'm looking to make sure that we try to do that every day in patients when it's appropriate based off their um, CPOT score to turn off their analgesia. And I'm also looking if that's not appropriate, like, hey, what happened to this patient and what can we put on in the background to get rid of that fentanyl drip? And if they're only on low dose fentanyl, can we give intermittent boluses of fentanyl to essentially like get them through. And then kind of what you were highlighting before about the guy um, that needed to use um, the restroom, essentially like make sure they have a bowel regimen too. Like people forget about that. And they're on high dose opiates for days. We especially had problems with this during COVID. If you were going to ask me to name like my top 10 drugs I had to have during COVID to help patients the most, it would be oral Narcan. Uh, because honestly, like we had these patients on Miralax, we had them on Senna and they were still getting really constipated. So we would give them oral Narcan and um, it didn't affect did not affect the effects of IV opiates, but it allowed the patient to um, have a bowel movement. So I think that's something else to remember. So my job is not only during rounds, like answering all these questions and trying to like facilitate decreased utilization of opiates when possible, but also like anytime we get new patients helping to figure out like what is the best pain regimen um, for this patient. Last thing I'll say, which is also important to remember, is um, when patients are have any kind of transition of care, because thinking about like um, people that are going to have um, addiction potentially to opiates, because I, I live in Tennessee, right? And we're one of the number one states um, with regards um, to the opiate epidemic is making sure much like stressors or prophylaxis or not so much anymore, but antipsychotics when we used to think they work for delirium, but also opiates. Do patients need these um, when they go to, like, to the floor, for example, because we don't want patients to be on them when they go to the floor or even indefinitely, unfortunately, and just thinking about that too, because it is a problem. Wow. And I, I'm thinking about some teams that I've worked with on site and working with the pharmacist. Um, I'm going to definitely send this episode to them. Um, I try to empower the pharmacist to jump in and have these conversations to assert themselves um, especially when it comes to pain management and sedation stewardship. But you're also bringing in this big picture of what are the bowels doing? And, and then I know with my pharmacist, are they sleeping? What's causing the delirium? What's causing the agitation? Really digging into the root of it and making suggestions, um, especially for pain management. Um, when I try to empower the pharmacist, especially to bring up sedation, they feel really nervous. They feel hesitant because they think, well, sedation is the nurse's realm. I can't dare step into that landmine. But this is within the pharmacist stewardship. This is how you really make the biggest impact as a pharmacist into the ICU team. You're not just there to fill meds, to check orders, even though obviously that's a huge safety net and makes a huge difference. But how do we empower pharmacists to really take the A by the by the horns, as well as the C and the D? And really so 
I, I like to say, so two things to think about. So I have this slide that sometimes I like to present and like the ABCDF bundle is all about a team, right? So like, think about like if everybody's working in their own little silo, right? And not talking to each other, being like, that's a nurse's job. That's the PT's job, you know, um, that's the pharmacist's job. We're not going to be near as effective. So some people like to say, hey, the f- uh, letter C, choices of sedational analgesia, that's the pharmacist's job. But I like to empower pharmacists that they can help with every letter. So thinking about the letter A, right? So like helping like with what we've talked about, like assessing pain and making sure those are performed and performed correctly. And also like helping select analgesia. And then same thing with the letter B, every single day on rounds. Um, if the nurse or someone on the team does not um, bring up about turning off that sedation or analgesia, I ask. Every single time. And honestly, like, um, I think that the pharmacist just needs to empower themselves and realize that they are like a very vital member of the team and that they um, should ask, hey, can we try to turn this off? Hey, can we lighten this up? Maybe it's not appropriate to completely turn it off, you know, and um, because that's going to we know that um, based off the ABC study that like that's going to help extubate the patient more quickly and that that's going to lead to um, a decreased risk of complications like ventilator associated pneumonia, et cetera. You know, the letter C is our letter. Like, I feel like most pharmacists feel comfortable with that. Like, hey, I'm avoiding benzodiazepines, thinking about dexmedetomidine and propofol. The letter D, I mean, delirium is why we do a lot of these other letters, right? So no benzos and treating pain appropriately, you know, and making sure that that the CAM is appropriately reported on rounds and avoiding antipsychotics to prevent and treat delirium because we know they don't work. And so, and people think this is crazy, but I even get involved with the letter E. And uh, (laughs) the very first time I asked, I was like, hey, hey, can we do PT? And a medicine resident looked at me and said, this patient isn't on warfarin because they thought it was like a prothrombin time. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm talking about physical therapy, you know? So once again, like um, physicians and um, advanced practice providers are so busy. So pharmacists in general in the ICU have to empower themselves to be um, the drug police, for lack of a better term, you know? And to really just to micromanage those medications to make sure that patients are getting the most Um, effective therapy. And it's little things like PT that fall through the cracks because everybody's so busy. And the same thing with like the family, like um, I told you before, I work in our post ICU clinic. So not only educating like family members and patients even about that, but really just like um, we have to make sure that the the nurse and that the family like are invited to rounds every day and that they know like we find them as we go to each patient. So just little things like that um, are things that the pharmacist can help to facilitate um, to really make sure that the ABCDF bundle is being applied to every single patient. I'm just, my hands are up right now. I'm just so excited about everything you're saying (laughs) because this is exactly what I have experienced as part of an interdisciplinary A to F bundle team, this exact role that I want pharmacists to play. I mean, obviously the A applies to everyone. The PTs, OTs need to be aware of A before they mobilize a patient. Nurses need to be obviously very in tune with what signs they're seeing, addressing the causes of these symptoms, things like that. But pharmacists are not just there to check the orders. Exactly. I love that, that your goal is to minimize the drugs used not just to run the drugs. Um, Absolutely. And you would never let us give antibiotics without an indication. Never. Because you have antibiotic stewardship. Mm-hmm. I would love pharmacists to have a standardized 
sedation and opioid stewardship. You would mm-hmm. never let us give, you should never let us give sedatives or opioids without an indication. And then just like with antibiotics, where you're watching the end time, you're saying, is it the right antibiotic still? Is it, um, do we still need it? Can we downsize it? Can we turn it off? Can we, or do we need to keep it going? You're part of that conversation. You take a lot of stewardship. I would love to see the whole team take the same approach with sedation and pain management moving forward. Anything else you would add to the conversation? No, I 100% agree with you. Like, I just think that it's important that everybody takes a role in this and that this is a huge part of patient's care just because they got people have to be educated about the long-term manifestations of this. So like the consequences, like post-intensive care syndrome, like um, I, like I said, I work in our post-ACU clinic. So when you see these people come in and they have cognitive impairment, right? We know delirium is like the number one risk factor for that. So once again, taking a step back, did we treat their pain? correctly? Did we give them the right sedative? We have to think about long-term consequences of these decisions we're making. And I think that in itself is the most empowering thing for people to know to really get involved and want to help with this. Do you bring that into rounds? Do you um, help with the education and bring in the post-ICU information into the immediate decision-making? Absolutely. Like I honestly like will bring that up on rounds. And I also am like the person that's looking for patients that are high risk for developing this. So people that have been on the vent for a long time, those that have delirium, those that have ARDS or sepsis. So I'm actively screening for these patients um, to go to the clinic too. And yeah, like as I even mentioned some of these papers, it's like we were um, talking today and like when a paper comes up like that on rounds, you better bet I send it. I'll send them a picture of like the Dr. Dre. I'll send them Thomas Trump study on like an station or Tim Gerard's ABC study, just so that they can see it for themselves too. Um, so they understand why this is so important and why we think about this every day. I love it. Bring the evidence into the intimate bedside, clinical, critical thinking, decision-making as a team. I That's exactly what this information should be used for. Thank you so much for everything you're doing for the critical care community throughout the world. Now, um, stay tuned for more episodes with more elements. And Joanne, I look forward to learning more from you in the future. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.